Nashville.net with your host, the Honky Tonk Hitman, Mike Rogers. Welcome to episode two of About Nashville with Mike Rogers. The first thing I want to say is if you are ever in Nashville or around the Nashville area or live in Nashville uh, and you want to go do some, uh, have something you know fun to do and, and uh, go down to Miss Kelly's Karaoke Bar. It's in Printer's Alley. Um, it's at uh, 207 Printer's Alley in Nashville. Uh, check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, they will always have a place in my heart. Um, I run a show during the uh, CMA Fest week uh, called the Indie Outlaw Show, where I invite uh, a few mainstream artists and, and uh, several uh, up-and-coming artists that come on and do uh, their own songs and uh, get introduced to a different type of population. Um, and it's fun. It's been a, we've done it for the last 13 years. Uh, this will be the 13th year, uh, as a matter of fact. And they have supported, out of those 13 years, they've supported the Indie Outlaw Show for the last eight out of the 13. Um, and, you know, Alex, Alice, and Kelly Cusick, they are an incredible family. Uh, they have an incredible place. So if you want to go do some karaoke or, or get a drink or just have a place, a fun place to hang out when you're in Nashville, go to Miss Kelly's Karaoke Bar in Printer's Alley, 207 Printer's Alley. Go check them out. Now... Uh, today's show, uh, well, let me back up real quick and tell you that, uh, you know, the, the surgery has happened. Um, I'm, I'm getting better, uh, recovering every day and, um, um, doing, doing a lot better. So moving forward and, and still on the journey to, to, to figure out who I am and who I was and, uh, and also to, um, develop and create and keep this thing going. So with that being said, today's episode is going to be with Robert Ellis Oral, uh, a man I've known for a very, very long time. And I'll tell you a little bit about him. Uh, you know, he is a singer, songwriter, uh, he's a painter, he's just an ultimate cool dude, creator. I mean, he, he, he does a little bit of everything and makes a little bit of everything. And this is a very interesting conversation that we have. Um, he, at one point in his career, he, he has, uh, he's, let me see, he's been songwriter. He's written several number one songs. He had uh, From Here to Eternity with Michael Peterson. He had uh, What's It to You with Clay Walker. He had, um, uh, let me think for a second. He had Next to You, Next to Me with Shenandoah. Uh, he's, a, he's a very solid songwriter. And besides that, you know, he's written songs with Reba, before anyway, Reba McIntyre, uh, Lindsay Lohan, Jessica Simpson, uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, as a matter of fact, he produced or co-produced uh, Taylor Swift's first record and, um, uh, and Love and Theft and Michael Peterson. And uh, so he's, he's been involved with a lot of people. Um, 
he first started off, I think, as a pop artist and then gravitated toward country music. Uh, and uh, in 1991, he released a, a single off of RCA Records called Boom. It was over just like that. And uh, it was actually a, a song that, that charted. And he likes to joke that that's how his solo career went. Boom, it was over just like that, um, which is funny, but it's not. Uh, he kind of found, an, an, you know, he went found another niche, uh, with his, which was writing and, and producing. And... Um, you know, this this is this is not somebody that has played in the music business. This is not somebody that is trying to get into the music business. This is somebody that is very well grounded into the music business. This is somebody that 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 has has and continues to write hit songs. And you know, this is a person that rubs elbows with Quentin Tarantino and Al Gore. Uh, you know, this is a person that that knows their way around Music Row. Um, and I, I met him, I guess, in uh, 1997. And um, at that particular time in my life, I was selling cars and uh, I was um, boxing professionally uh, to pay the bills. At that particular point, I believe, um, I had met a young woman for a few months and, and got her pregnant. And then we ended up getting uh, married in Vegas. Um, and it was a very surreal uh, moment. You know, I, I went from living in my car to literally within months, boxing professionally, uh, getting married, having a kid along the way, um, getting married in Vegas, having uh, dinner with Jeff Foxworthy or hanging out backstage at the Grand Ole Opry. And then um, all of a sudden uh, I'm having to figure out, well, you know, I need to put some money on the table. I got a kid on the way, and that's when I started selling cars and 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 uh, continuing to box and trying to figure out figure it all out. And it was a uh, it was a scary moment, I'll say the least. To say the least, I was trying to figure things out and and trying to you know understand how I got well, I got a life on the way that's coming that I need to figure out how to provide for. And um, so I, I started selling cars and. All of a sudden, um, I had saw uh, Robert L. Sorrell come on the car lot, and nobody. And at this particular point, he had long hair, and and um, you know he he, he you you kind of had whenever whenever somebody stepped onto the lot, everybody would jump, and nobody jumped at this guy, and uh, but I knew who he was. I said I got this guy, and I walked up to him, and I think I sold him a toy. Uh, Ford Expedition. That's what it was. It was a Ford Expedition. Um, and we were driving around and we started talking about country music. And the next thing you know, he's uh, uh, inviting me to come over to his office to play him some songs. And uh, well, the rest is history. We started working together and um, and started writing songs together. And and uh, this guy could not have been a nicer guy. And, and uh, we've just remained friends throughout the years. Um, so it was a very fun interview, you know. And we had a we had a really good conversation. We we talked about some some things that uh, that I had forgotten about, and and uh, we'll see what you think. Now, uh, remember that you can uh, email us at about Nashville 
at gmail.com if you want to provide feedback, ask questions, or book an interview, or whatever else. Uh, we've got a lot of interviews that are coming through. One of the things that I want to continue to do is to uh, continue to develop and cultivate those relationships with inside the comedy community. There is a huge uh, comedy community right here in Nashville. Did not know it. I am a fanboy of comedy. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, so I want to, uh, you know, help and get in the middle of all of that. And, and, uh, and so there you go. Starting to stutter and stammer and, and it's like I've been drinking had it. So there you go. Um, so let's get, uh, let's get on to this interview and let's hear what Robert Ellis Orwell has to say. Just going like this. We've already started. Oh, all right. All right. Well, that's not. That's off the record. <laughs> all right. Mo- that, that little bit's off the record. Most- we're starting off the record. Now we're going on the record. Okay. So we, we, we will start on the record now. All right. So I, as I was driving over here uh, and and thinking about this, you know, how we we have known each other for almost twenty years. Yeah. Yeah. 20 yeah. years. Guess when the last time I played Honky Tonk Hitman, the song, when was the last time I played that? Two days ago. What? Because I'm going through my catalog and just sort of, I'm cherry picking songs that I just feel like have a, could have a second life. Uh-huh. And then I'm mastering them. Really? And, you know, just taking them to another level in terms of, and, and uh, yeah, I listened to that a couple of days ago. I love that song. I love that whole project. Second Life sounds like it. Well, you know, it's, God, I tell you what, there are some artists out there that are coming out that they're, they're completely off the grid. They're not doing the mainstream thing. And I'm like blown away by the stuff that they're doing. Guys yeah. like Sturgill Simpson. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, turn me on to Sturgill Simpson was my rock star son, Jamin, you know, the drummer in Jeff the Brotherhood. I've never heard of him. Jamin goes, hey, Dad, check this out let's check this guy out because he's really into he's into country music that's authentic mm-hmm. that's his thing it was that is that not is it not cool yeah yeah oh that's man great. I, what turned me think what did turn me on to sturgill simpson somebody had mentioned his name so it kind of was there and i'm real big into podcasts and i, I love listening to other people's podcasts and i listen to mark Marin and i listen to yeah. to the nerdist and yeah. i was listening to seth uh not seth rogan uh uh Oh, the UFC guy. Uh, big difference. Yes, big, huge, <laughs> huge difference. Seth Rogen would not do very well in the UFC. No. Um, just laugh his way through it. Joe Rogan. Yeah. And um, so he interviewed uh, Sturgill Simpson, and I, they had to have been high or something, because this, this, <laughs> the podcast was three hours long. Wow. And ironically, I mean, it was so good that I just sat there and listened the entire time. He didn't play one song or anything. Right, right. But just listening to yeah. him talk and, and hearing about who he was, and, and he just made me want to pick up and find out who, what his music was about. And I was sure. like, holy crap, this is really cool stuff. So, yeah, once again, the, 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 the doors are wide open right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, Chris Stapleton, Casey Musgraves, Brandy Clark, people like that are really not getting played on the radio, but they're the ones that are winning the Grammys. And it's because it's because, you know, country music, mainstream country music is so radio driven that there's a tendency to well, we better sound like this. So we'll get played on the radio. Right. And then you've got these real individualists that come along and say, I'm going to do undo my thing my way. And and then when they start doing voting for Grammys and things like that, well, you're talking about people that are 
outside of Nashville that are voting for those things. People in LA and people in New York, and they're um, not necessarily, you know, following the the the, uh, the path that they're supposed to follow, so to speak. Right. So um, that's what's is interesting. I had this discussion at a major label. Uh, like three days ago, I had a meeting about an act that I'm working with now that is, again, one of those fringe acts, mm -hmm. but my favorite act. I mean, I just, they're just amazing. And, um, uh, and we're not trying to, you know, we, we know that we need songs that could get played on the radio, sure, but sure. we're not, ain't, we're, that's not our, you know, that's not our focus. Our focus is on what makes them different and what makes them cool. And, um, they're called the Reclaws, which is R E K L A W with an S, which is Walker backwards. The, their their last name is Walker, and their dad is a, a, a chiropractor. And there's already a Doc Walker in Canada. That's the, the one of the most famous groups in Canada. So they thought that, but yeah, yeah, I've written a bunch of things with those yeah. guys. So uh, they thought it'd be confusing. So they just turned their name around backwards and became the Reclaws. Yeah, actually, I, I was doing a show. They actually came out to the show one time, um, and. Uh, they were super, super. There was two. There was yeah. I two of the guys, brother and sister. Um, I don't. Golly, it's so long ago. I can't remember. I just remember that uh, every song they played was an A. Ah, never mind. I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Try to set up a joke and completely screwed it all up. But regardless, I'm not a comedian. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the music scene is definitely weird now, and but it's it's a good weird. It's a cool weird. Yeah. I mean. I don't know. It's it's like another thing that's happening too is the 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 Europe was never really a huge country music market for mainstream country stuff. They always like like in London they'll be like, oh yes, Willie Nelson. You know, it's like oh yeah, okay, but that's that. Uh, how what what about Luke Bryan? Never heard of him. So uh, you know you know what I'm saying. It's like uh, it, it's just that mainstream country just doesn't resonate over there. But I, you know, like uh, that's where Casey Musgraves is constantly going over and touring and bringing that crazy show she does. And Cadillac 3 is over there right now, uh, you know, playing sold out shows all over England. Um, they just uh, they, they seem to gravitate towards the cool stuff, too. I love the stuff that she writes. I yeah. just think it's so cool. It's so, uh, you know, it's refreshing. And the fact that she gets played on the radio is cool, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I don't even think she's had a top 10 yet. Um, Mary Ground, I think, was her biggest. And I think it went to like 12 or something. We can look that up. Well, who who, who cares? I mean, I mean, if, if if you're writing, I guess if you're if you. I don't think we need radio anymore, I guess is my whole point. Well, see, that's the opposite of what uh, famously Gary Overton, when he was the head of Sony about a year ago, said that if you're not on the radio, you're not an artist. Do you remember that? Well, that's a lot when, of people. When you're not on the radio, you're not an artist. And that just really ticked a lot of people <laughs> off uh, who weren't on the radio, like Sturgill Simpson, like uh, Chris Stapleton, uh, like these guys, Love and Theft. They were on, they were on they were on RCA at the time, and uh, they had an album uh, that they made for RCA, and they uh, they put out a, the first single, went to number one, and then they waited six months to put the second single out. And the first single was a song they wrote. The second single, they picked these songs that sort of sounded like everything else. And one after another, one, two, three, they all sort of died in there, like at 28 or 25. So what, is, uh, what do they do? They drop the band. 
They don't go, why are we, pick, who's picking these singles? They don't go, who's promoting these? Why aren't they going up the They go, no, let's just drop the band. So they went in the studio and made a new record because RCA wouldn't let them have the record that they, that RCA owned, which is typical. That happens with record, record labels. And they went and made this record. And they released this song, Whiskey on My Breath, mm-hmm. uh, a year, over a year ago. And uh, it's, it's it's been floundering around like in the you know the fifties and sixties on the chart you know like maybe getting down a I think it might have got as high as like thirty eight or something then it goes backwards and then it comes up a little and goes backwards a year has gone by and uh, Bobby Bones heard them play it live um, I don't know about two three weeks ago and uh, he said why don't you why, you should put that out as a single and they, well, it is a single it's our single <laughs> and he said well I've never heard it he said. Exactly. So he played it on his show last week. Uh, and uh, it was at the time around 280 on the iTunes chart. By the end of the day, it was at number two. Oh, my goodness. And now they got 10 ads last week at radio. So so this song, which is a really authentic, great country song, um, and this record is completely acoustic. There's Well, there's organ and bass, uh, but there's no electric guitars on the record. And it's just a great country record. And, you know... Uh, again, they're on the fringe, uh, and, 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 and they are now getting played on the radio. So people are going to discover their music again. And again, of course they, you know, they started out like a house of fire when they were on Lyric Street back about five years ago. Their first single went top 10. Their second single was going up the chart even faster. And then, uh, they came and closed the record label in the middle of that. So they fired 31 people one day and that was it. So, so are they doing, are they, are they with infinity cat now? Or no, no, they no. Doing? They're on there. They're actually on, they're called love and theft. They are calling their label hate and purchase. <laughs> And so, uh, and when they started, they were a trio, um, and now they're a duo. Uh, one of the guys. So Anne, you know, they got rid of Anne. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They just ended up with a uh, love theft. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually it was a guy named Brian, great guy, Brian Bandis. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just, after that first, uh, wave of success and, uh, and then the disappointment of, you know, and he just said, my heart's not in it. And he went on to do other things. So. I, yeah, I mean that's one of those things that, that, that the inter- I, I, w- I wouldn't even just say the country music business. I would just say the entertainment business, a whole. If 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 it's not something that you love, or if it's something that you're passionate about, there's anything else that you could see yourself doing. Go do it. Go, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, exactly. I mean, listen, uh, <laughs> you're looking at uh, uh, you know the case history right here. Uh, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I am still in the face of you know. S- there's been a lot of success, and there's been a lot of. I thought that was going to happen, and it didn't. You know, uh, but I am still eternally optimistic about the next thing. Yesterday. Um, we licensed a song from the whiskey on my the song whiskey on my breath to a new Netflix series yesterday, and um, I had to sign off on the license. So I scanned the copies and I and when I was sending it back to the music supervisor in L.A., um, I attached another song from this album and said, "I think this is this could be a great song for your show too." And I'm like, I told the the girl Ollie Delgado who runs uh, Infinity Cat for me. I said, you know, I just pitched this song, and if if they don't use it, I'll be surprised. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if they don't use it, I'd be really surprised because it's perfect for them. Well, you know, you know what the chances of that are, really. But I just feel like, you know, they, how could they not use this song? It's, it's perfect. You ever heard of the band Lacero? No. 
Oh gosh, you gotta listen to some of their stuff. Uh, they're they're one of those bands that's kind of off the grid. Well, I'd say off the grid. They're not mainstream. Right. They're from Memphis, Tennessee, but they've been around for probably fifteen years now. And they just have such a huge following, and they they too, like oh, I'll use a couple of examples. Um, the entire. Have you ever seen the movie with Matthew McConaughey where he's a convict hiding out on a boat on a little island trying to? Uh, um, what was the name of that? It wasn't. A, it wasn't the one. Was it, was it a comedy? No, because yeah, I know two, he there's did. two little boys in it. Okay, and and they no. were hiding him because he was trying to hide from the law. Um, and uh, I think I do. Reese I mean, Witherspoon was in it. Yeah, too. I remember seeing clips and stuff of that, but I don't. Well, think Lucero I've seen wrote the, the entire soundtrack. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's when you hear their stuff, it's completely unique. And I've heard a couple of their songs in uh, Walking Dead. Yep. which I love too. Uh, I don't know. Do you like Walking Dead? It's one of the, it's one of the things, shows I have not seen. Um, I, you know, there's there's so much to see. It's ridiculous, and and it's actually you know I've never thought of retiring, and I've just I've just. But now I'm starting to think, maybe I should slow down a little bit, work a little less, and watch more TV, <laughs> because there's so much to watch. And you know, we binge watch, and we'll, 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 I'm, I'm watching uh, Transparent right now. I was late to Game of Thrones. It was it was the end of the fifth season. <sighs> It was the end of the fifth season. I had resisted it for five seasons. Uh, my kids would come over the house and watch it with my wife, and I'd say, "Yes, yeah, I'm just, I'll be downstairs." And then I, 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 I saw the last episode of the fifth season, oh. and I said, "And I just come back from being in Europe all summer last summer. Like, I was in the Czech Republic, I was in Venice, and I was in, Re I was in castles. And I've always thought of castles as being something from like Disneyland that weren't real. But I'm standing in a a dungeon in Venice from the year 965 and uh, where people died because the flooding would come in and they'd just keep them in the and uh, torture rooms and, and, uh, and you know we, we had this sort of they call it a secret tour of the the main castle there whatever it is so you're seeing the real shit the it shit was where, yeah where it was really, we literally really saw went. literally saw like like where they, they still have preserved everything and um, and I'm, I'm like well when was this when was this built it was, uh, uh, it was built in 11 you know something and i started looking at castles in a whole new way so came back from that saw that last episode and i was like i have to i have to see the show <laughs> so i started at episode one and my wife went back and watched the whole thing again with me i kind of it took me about probably about six weeks to watch all five seasons i mean i just i just watching like three four episodes in a row you you know a a series is is that good when you have a partner or a friend or whoever else that, that introduces you to it and goes, oh, and by the way, I'll just watch the entire thing. Exactly. Exactly. She didn't miss an episode. Um, but yeah, again, there's, there's just, there's, it's almost like overkill. There's like too much great TV to keep up with. And I keep, I keep, you know, everyone is always like, are you watching? Are you watching? Mm -hmm. Are you watching? It's like, haven't seen that one. Oh, you've got to see that. That's the, it's the best. And, uh, that's one that I, I, uh, and that series is completely over, right? So that would be the walking dead. I know there's like a sequel series to that, but the walking uh, dead, actually I walking dead still going. I think it's back up February 14th. Really? Yeah. Oh, for crying aloud. I'm just getting further and further behind. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming back to... February 14th. And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it, you you continue to go down that path to see how they're going to survive and how right. they're going to right. remain some 
form of human themselves because you do tie it in the way in, in the, the way they introduce it to the world they kind of lose themselves they turn they change right and you just evolve to whatever you need to to survive and it's it's i don't know i, I like it there is a new one out though called um fear the walking dead yeah I that's like what that i thought was like a sequel to it yeah the guy the, the main kid in that one reminds me of johnny depp a young johnny depp so yeah. much that it's chronic kind of crazy um but yeah, I, I I love that. So, have you seen uh, oh Breaking Bad? Yeah, every episode. Yeah, fantastic show. That Amazing. was that a was, show that yeah. got better and better every year. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was definitely show. Mr. Rogers turns into Scarface. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, I tell you, an interesting thing about that one though, I I went back and watched all of those episodes by myself again, binge watched by myself, mm-hmm. and the second time I went through, by the last season, I hated his guts. Yeah, literally hated him. Yeah, and yeah. and and I remember the first time watching it through him, I was always rooting for him to right. do this, and yeah, you should, you yeah, get that, because you felt like guy. he was sort of dragged into this in the first place, right? And right. but there became a point in that show where he he was making his own decisions. Yes, yeah. and it and then he became so manipulative and so evil, yeah. and it's like I wish Jesse would just pull the trigger, just kill him, <laughs> do something. I'm not going to give a spoiler, but regardless, that was. Uh, that was kind of crazy. Have you seen Star Wars? I have not. Um, most of my kids have seen it. Uh, I'm 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 told it's a it's a great one, a great one of the best. And what do you think? Oh, I I, I definitely think it was better than any of the pre. Do you have to remember the like the other episodes to to get it? I mean, because my memory is pretty foggy of <laughs> uh, of because uh, uh, I didn't. I mean, there are some I skipped towards the end. After the Jar Jar Binks debacle, you don't really have to to, to know the the prequels, okay. but you got to really know the the the, the, the three, four, five, and six. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, do I think it holds up? Absolutely, I think it holds up. Do I think it opens a whole lot of questions? Absolutely. I mean, I my mind, I'm sitting here watching this, going, hmm, okay, okay. You're, this pisses me off because now I'm going to have to wait two years to find out how this goes out. Right. You know. Right. I, I wish that you know it wasn't like. You know, when I was a little kid, um, this is a true story. Um, we, we was 1977, watched Star Wars in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and loved it so much uh, that my little mind was like, I'm I'm writing this next episode. I'm writing the Star Wars, too. <laughs> so I, I literally, me. me and a buddy of mine, Michael McCauley in the neighborhood, we wrote a script for Star Wars 2. And we ended up sending it to, uh, trying to send it to George Lucas uh, uh, to say, hey, we, we, we need, we're going to do Star Wars 2. Send us a couple cameras, a Wookiee, and a lightsaber, and we got this thing. <laughs> and uh, I, he ended up sending a, uh, a picture, a signed, oh, my gosh, the man has a lightsaber in his office. That is awesome. That is cool. And, and I'm kind of afraid now. He's standing over me with a lightsaber. You can't see this in the podcast world, but... You can hear it, though. You can hear it. That is cool. So you're obviously a Star Wars fan from way back, too. Well, actually, this is my son. Jamin's, and he actually is an even nicer one than this. He's got one that has it's made of kind of like a like glass. Um, oh. And it lights it, so it's always out. But it, but it makes, whoosh, whoosh, makes great sounds when you whip it around. Those, yeah. that would be... Too cool to have. Yeah, you're um, wearing a Star Wars T-shirt. Yes, I'm telling Star you, sweatshirt right now. I'm yeah. like the biggest 
toughest nerd you'd ever want to meet. I mean, <laughs> I, I just I like I don't know I like nerdy things. I guess I I was had my comic book collection. I had my you know uh, stuff like that. And I, I tell you I, another funny story. I hated com I hated baseball. Still, I don't like baseball. I don't even watch baseball. Mm -hmm. uh, but the kids in, in the neighborhood traded baseball cards. So I started collecting baseball cards as an excuse just to talk to them. You know, yeah. give me, you know, so I've, I still have my baseball card collection Ooh. to this day. Um, I collected football cards. The NFL came out with football cards uh -huh. back in, you know, like I think probably the Late 60s. Was it Tops or Don Russ? I, I, for, I forget, but they were gone. I don't know where they are now. My, they ended up in a, some sort of a, a rummage sale at the church or something. So, um, you know, it was like, hey, Mom, where are my football cards? Um, I didn't think you wanted those. Okay. That's what happened to my 007 briefcase, too. So what, what, what interests you as a child? When you were growing up? Uh, spies. Uh, uh, I saw, I was telling someone this last night. I don't know why I was allowed to go see, uh, let's see, probably 1964. I saw a double feature, Goldfinger and Dr. No. And I was like, <laughs> so I was like nine years old. And I, I, I was trying to figure it out last night. Why was I allowed to go to see these movies? Because, you know, and there was pretty racy stuff for, for back then. They needed a babysitter. And uh, no, <laughs> what happened was there was a kid up the street named Bruce Nelson. And he was into the same stuff. I was spy stuff, too. And his parents had all the Sean, uh, all the uh, the um, the uh, 007 books the Ian Fleming, the whole series in their bedroom. I remember up on, up on this shelf, I would say Goldfinger, Doctor, they were all up there. And um, so they were really, really into it. So, so they wanted to go see this movie and they, she called and must've called my mom and said, Hey, we want, does Bobby want to go see this movie? What is it? Oh, it's, it's good. It's right. So they just let me go off and see it. And that had such an impact on me. Those two movies. I started, uh, I still have 007 action figures right here in this drawer. Um, here we go. Here's Sean Connery right there. That is um, awesome. I still have my 007. Now, the 007 briefcase that I had as a kid, which was the best toy ever made. It has uh, it has a code book. It has a passport. It has, a, the, the, it has that German Luger. Uh -huh. It also turns into a rifle by sticking all these things on it with a scope. It shoots real bullets, like plastic bullets. Uh -huh. you, there's a place on the, on the briefcase where you can, when you have the briefcase closed, if someone tries to open it and they don't know the combination, it's set that you have a, a cap, a roll of caps in there, and it goes bang when you open it up. You could also, with the, with, you can load bullets in a chamber in the briefcase so that when you're walking and holding it by the handle, there's a little hole in the end of the briefcase. You press a button and it shoots a bullet out the brief, briefcase. That is too cool. And it's right behind you over there, but it's covered with stuff, but I'll show it to you afterwards. It's amazing. And I had, oh, to, wow. I had to go and I had to spend $800 on eBay to, 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 to get my briefcase back that, that disappeared <laughs> at some point during my childhood. eBay. Gosh, I love eBay. I'm so hooked on eBay. I just bought something on eBay that just, I was like, I, could, I, I used to, I used to have a huge collection of mad magazines mm -hmm. uh, and loved mag magazine. Loved mad magazine. Yeah. And do you know they still make it? Oh yeah. Uh, well, I did. Especially, uh, I, I loved that snappy answers to stupid questions. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I'll do that on purpose to like, uh, Ollie, who he'll be, she'll be in the kitchen. She works for me here. And, and, uh, like she be, she'll be standing over the, the, uh, 
the stove and she's frying it like frying an egg. And I'll walk up to her and go, what are you doing? Frying an egg? <laughs> and she just, you know, cause that's, that's the question. Right. And then they'd have these really snappy answers to those stupid questions. And she'd just stare at me and I'd be, I oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I, 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 I get it now. You're, you're frying an egg. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so yeah, but you can get anything you want now. Right. If, so if you didn't, like I, my first actual memory of being a human being walking this earth is, uh, Leaving my uh, being in an elevator, looking at a bunch of people's knees, uh, and crying because I left my Captain Kangaroo game in in my hospital room. Now this takes me back to uh, I'm I'm less than two years old, you know, just going by when I was in the hospital, Boston Children's Hospital, and I had a lot of complications when I was born, and then things complicated again, you know, in, in my first year, and my, I might have been a year and a half years old. But I remember screaming and crying and, and, and just it didn't make sense to me why we couldn't just go back up and get my Captain Kangaroo game. And uh, I used to say to my parents, why don't you just let me go back and get my Captain Kangaroo game? And they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And it dawned on me just a couple of years ago. This, by the way, after I bought the Captain Kangaroo game on eBay. So I get my Captain Kangaroo game back and uh, it dawned on me that I was in a children's hospital. That probably belonged to the hospital. Oh. They probably brought that in for me to play with while I was there. Right. And then they had to leave it there. Oh, and it yeah. never occurred to me. And that makes perfect sense. Right. So, Mom, rest in peace. I'm sorry I was mad about that. <laughs> so t tell me about growing up. And uh, what got you into music? creating things yeah. and making things? and well, Not necessarily music. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny because it. now that you mention it... Uh, before music, there was uh, building sets on a puppet stage that my grandfather, who was a master carpenter, built this beautiful puppet stage, hand puppets. And it had this thing in the back where you'd lift up the back and you'd put your hands up and they would come up behind a stage, had footlights that were on a dimmer. Mm -hmm. Which I think for like 1962 was pretty, I don't know, like, like it was called a rheostat back then. But all right, so had be beautiful lights, curtains, and I would literally like construct sets for like the show Camelot and put Camelot on with two two hands. I started really getting into Broadway musicals, so I was like really into the songs, and I would play the record while I had the puppets dancing around, and I would have shows for the neighborhood kids, and I would sell popcorn and lemonade, and, and then I'd just get on and work on the next show. And also down there in the basement um, where my puppet stage was was a, an old piano, and I started messing around with that. And uh, so what I do for a living now uh, is make music and make art. And it's exactly what I was doing when I was, you know, seven years old. It was making music and making art. And nothing's changed. Um, I, I, I stopped making art when I was in the uh, sixth grade. I had an art teacher who, now back then, you know, kids were not really encouraged to be, to color outside the lines. They were really told to color inside the lines mm. and an art project would be like okay kids today we're going to make a snowman and before and right in front of you you've got some cotton balls some glue a piece of construction paper scissors and uh, a crayon 
and this is how you assemble it. And they would, and everyone's really was supposed to look the same. And I, I made some wacky thing that looked like a polar bear or something. And, and a, an art teacher, I never got to have my art up on the wall with a little blue ribbon or whatever. And she said, Oh, Bobby, you'll never be an artist. Well, you know, back in, uh, I didn't, says I that. Did, I, well, this one did. And, and back in 1998, uh, my wife and kids gave me for father's day, they gave me an like an easel and paints and canvases and brushes. And I was like, I didn't touch them for almost a year. Cause I was just going to make a mess. I figured. And then I said, you know what? I'll give it a try and I'll see what, you know, see what happens. And I started painting those kind of moments from my childhood, things that I remember, like sitting in front of the television with my grandmother watching uh, this show called Queen for a Day mm-hmm. and drinking tea. Um, she used to always make her tea and then she, I, she'd pour a glass of milk for me and she'd put her warm tea bag in my glass of milk. So I, that, I, that was pretty grown up because I had a little, like my little thing of tea. And then um, I actually, there's a painting that I've painted about 10 or 15 times because I keep selling it uh, over and over um, called that's on the blackboard. It says Bobby's sixth grade art teacher taught him to be afraid of art. And she's glaring at me and I'm, you look, I, I used a rubber stamp. It's sort of a bird's eye view of the classroom. You can see all the desks and all the paintings. And I used a rubber stamp for everyone's painting except for mine. And I made it just all different than anybody else's. Um, it really had an effect on me when someone shuts you down, when someone says you can't do something and you internalize that and you believe it, then you believe it. And then I started really getting into painting these pictures from my childhood. Now, they look like sixth grade level paintings and they're really all I can do. I can't do different styles or whatever, but I've sold over 150 of those paintings to people as varied as like the rock and roll, uh, Lucinda Williams, the rock star lives in LA. She's got five, five paintings. Uh, Alan Tipper Gore have bought three of my paintings oh, uh, and, and, and all, and all in like Norway, Australia, Sweden, England, people just find them on my website and they, the next thing you know, all right, great story. Um, uh, my son, uh, one of my sons, Jamin, he, uh, he thought, you know, I was talking about buying a bicycle and he said, dad, you should come over to Eastside Cycles. I'm going to show you a bike that you should buy. It's a, it's a kind of a new company, but it's, they make these retro bikes, super light, super strong. And you need something for your frame, uh, to, you know, to, to hold you. I'm a little hefty. So, um, I go over and I look at this bike and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gorgeous. And the guy says, take it for a test drive. So we, we each get on one of these bikes and uh, it's called an Electra, an Electra bike. And we get on these bikes, we cruise around East Nashville a little bit, come back. And I said, you know, I love it, but I'm not paying $700 for a bike. I mean, I just, I, that's just not me. Right. I can go buy one, in, you know, at a pawn shop. And he's like, dad, dad, you really should buy this bike. And I said, well, I'll think about it. I come back to my office and I check my email and there's an email from someone in Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein, someone named uh, Mr. Arnaud. And he writes, uh, dear Mr. Ellis Oral, I would like to buy these two paintings from your website. And uh, I look at the prices, of the two paintings you want, and it's exactly $700. 
Okay. Now these paintings are leaning against a wall someplace out in my art shack, which is out behind the infinity cat house. The world was telling you, you needed this. Bike. Exactly. So I wrote back and, and sometimes people inquire, but they don't really pay, pay all the money. So mm-hmm. I wrote back with shipping. That'll be, you know, $782. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, bing, I've got money in PayPal. And I was like, and this all happened within like three or four hours. I called Jamie and I said, tomorrow we're going to go pick up that bike. Because I just got it for for the fun of painting two paintings. I now have this beautiful bicycle. So, um, you know, art teacher who told me I was not an artist. I got, you know, I, if, if I wasn't an artist, why do I have this bicycle? Yes, yeah, screw you, art teacher, <laughs> wherever you are. No, she, Damn honestly, you to hell. Don't say she's dead. Oh, oh. <laughs> she's, she's probably, like, she, if she was alive, she'd be like 125 years old. So, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, she's uh, long gone. Now, now I feel terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure she's in heaven because she was, other than, you know, shutting me down, uh, you know, uh, creatively for 40 years, she, she was probably a very sweet person. Okay. All right. So, so then you started after you, you started doing that. When did you start playing instruments? And uh, my, I had my first uh, band okay. uh, called the JB4. That stood for Jeff and Bob. There was a, a kid that, that lived down the street, and he could play the piano like nobody's business. So I, How were you? He was, I, uh, we were in the third grade. Okay. So what's third grade? Is that about uh, nine, eight, nine? Yeah, something like that. So, uh, so I, I got a little drum set, a little toy drum set, and I started playing the drums because he was a better piano player. And we were called the JB4 because you're supposed to have four people in a band. Uh-huh. We never found the other two, but it was just the two of us. <laughs> but we had, you know, I had the, like on the drum head, we had a cool logo. It said the JB4, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> And my favorite, my favorite uh, artist back then would be whoever was on Ed Sullivan last, basically. You know, if the Beatles were on, they'd be them for a while. Stones were on, be them. Dave Clark Five, love the Dave Clark Five. Uh, so we, we played um, in my basement. We didn't play any place else. The first gigs I started having as a musician was in the fifth grade when I uh, walked up to a kid on the playground named Doug Millett and I said, you want to form a band? And he was like, uh, yeah, sure. We didn't really know each other. But he lived pretty close to my house. And I think I met so, Doug. Yeah, you probably did. Yeah, you, I'm sure you did because he came down here. This is the weird thing. All right, we're from a little town north of Boston called Linfield, Massachusetts, okay? And back in uh, around 1989 to 1991, somewhere in there, uh, Doug Millett, this kid from Linfield, Massachusetts, and Robert Ellis Oral, this other kid from right up the street, we both had number one country songs within the span of a year. Um, I had Next to You, Next to Me by Shenandoah. He had A Woman in Love by Ronnie Millsap. Uh, that's a really strange coincidence. But anyway, back to the fifth grade. So I up, I'm going to go in the playground. Now, Doug and I know that we're not the coolest kids in the class. We're actually probably the most uncool kids in the class. And we were hyper aware of our uncoolness. So we had the idea to get the two coolest kids in our class, Gary Milo and Steve Piero. Piero played drums. He actually was a good drummer. Gary didn't play anything, but he was the ultimate girl magnet. So we asked him to be in the band. What did he play? Nothing. He stood there and just sort of moved a little bit. Didn't even play tambourine. 
But so now there's four of us because there's supposed to be four in a band, and we played like the school talent shows, and then we'd play birthday parties, and and you even had a Pete Best. Yeah, we had exactly, <laughs> and we and we there's somewhere there are tapes of because we used to record our rehearsals. I love to get my hands on those tapes. I don't know where they are, but so that started it, and then uh, played. You know, always had something going all through junior high school, high school, and then I, I kind of walked away from music. Because the practical side of me said, "Hey, I got to make a living. I got to do something." So I stopped playing, and I got. When this is now, I'm I've graduated. Uh, I spent a, a, a year at college uh, studying philosophy. Um, why philosophy? Because I wanted to be a musician, but uh, uh, my dad really wanted me to have something to quote fall back on. So mm-hmm. he kind of insisted I go to college. So I went to college, and I I started studying philosophy and. I, I was doing very well. I got A's. And uh, after the first year, though, my, my dad said, what are you going to do with this philosophy degree? Open a philosophy shop? You know, and I was like, well, you know, you're the one who wants me to go to college. I, I want to make music. So uh, I, I took a stab at it. And I started playing uh, music uh, with, uh, with Doug, actually. We started a little duo, started playing all around uh, New Hampshire, Maine, uh, uh, Canada. And, um, and then that sort of... Uh, wore out its welcome. Um, we were famous for never being asked back to the same club twice. Um, what we did was a pretty strange little show. We only played songs that people didn't know. And people would come up and go, uh, hey, can you guys play uh, You Are the Sunshine of My Life? And be like, sorry, don't know it. But how about this song by Fats Waller? What? So we, we, we literally never got invited back to the same club. And after we'd sort of exhausted all the clubs in New England and Lower Canada... Uh, we disbanded, and that's when I made a record. Um, now, this is back when people didn't make independent records, really. This is 1977. I went to a studio in Boston, and I said, I want to make a record. And they said, okay. I said, what does it cost? And they said, well, it's going to cost such and such. And I said, okay, and how do I do it? And they said, well, you know, you have, to, you have a band? I said, not really, but I'll put one together. And they said, well, you book a week, and you come in here and make your record, and we'll help you. So... It was uh, two nights before it was time to make the record. I still didn't have a bass player or a drummer. And I was in a bar with my friend Doug, who was going to be in my band. And I met this bass player and a drummer. I said, I'm making a record in two days. You want to make it with me? And they said, what are you, out of your mind? What are you talking about? I said, I'll give you 10 free copies. Come and make this record. So they did. And uh, I made the record and I printed it up myself, you know, had it pressed. And I thought, you know, if I already had a record and I sent it out to all the record labels, they'd go, this guy already has a record, so so we'll put him on our label instead. I mean, it was a crazy way of thinking, but again, eternal optimist right from the beginning. I still have a notebook full of all the rejection letters, and I mean uh, every label you can think of, and there's all kinds of different rejection letters. There's the form letter that just says, dear, and then they write your name, and it says, uh, uh, we are not allowed to accept submissions at this time. Then there's the ones that actually say, I listened to your 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 record, and and uh, I found some, some good songs on there. Uh, maybe keep working at it and let us... Uh, and these are people, I mean, this is like every record label you can think of. Mm-hmm. I still have all rejection letters i went on to actually work with some of the people that rejected me back in 1977 because by about 1980 i had uh, a band that really was making some noise in boston and i signed a, a record deal with rca uh and i made three albums for rca from 80 to 84 uh 
under the name Robert Ellis Oral. Not a lot of people bought those records, but hey, they kept letting me make them, and uh, and I kept getting to travel the world. And uh, you know, I made two of the records in in at a studio in Wales called Rockfield Studios, fantastic studio. And I was getting to work with some of my heroes and open for them. I I did a tour with you too. I took I did I worked with uh, the Kinks uh, playing like arenas, you know, opening for them and and uh, a band called NRBQ that was my favorite band at the time so it was all good and then the bottom fell out what and, was the bottom what was the well bottom? I, I you know the, that third record again what no one was buying it and uh and rca dropped me and and uh and it was kind of like really it's about time um and i found myself completely on the outside of the music business again with really no way to get back in because it's it, it always feel like a closed club that you got your nose pressed up against the glass and you're going hey I'm over here you take pay attention to me sorry pal you know you've had your shot um, and I ended up working construction um, I remember one night just miserable it was sort of drizzly snow I'm up on a roof freezing my butt off and I've got uh, you know a, a, a pneumatic uh, hammer I'm chunk 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 and I I just about started crying I, I was just like what am I doing this right. is ridiculous and I just vowed that I'm going to climb back into this thing and I started um, I started coming to Nashville I started learning about country music because I really didn't know really we didn't have a country music station in Boston um, but I loved uh, Vern Gosden and George Jones and the emotion that was in their voice I loved Ricky Skaggs and that whole thing and I, I would go see them uh, play when they came to Boston and uh, and then there was like Dwight Yoakam and Foster and Lloyd and, uh, you know, Lyle Lovett. And I mean, and Steve Earle was knocking me out. I couldn't believe how good this guy was. And as far as I was concerned, he was a rock star with acoustic guitar, you know. Loving. And so uh, I started coming to Nashville and I would go into a bar uh, where the songwriters hung out. And I would literally have a bunch of ideas and choruses in my head. And I just walk up and say, hey, how you doing? Because uh, you... hey, okay, these are all songwriters. I know they are. They, I can hear them talking about writing songs. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, uh, hey, check this out. And, uh, you know, I'd go like, you know, hey, riding down the road in my pickup truck. You better get ready because I'm picking you up. And like, you know, what's that? That's something I'm working on. You want to work on it with me? And I would literally sing hooks to people and, and try to get them to write with me. And that's... And I started writing with people here. So I made that pilgrimage like every six, eight weeks. I would come to Nashville with a big bag full of hooks that I hoped someone would get. And I started co-writing. And um, a few years later, uh, 1990, I'd had a few cuts, Lokridge Boys, um, you know, a few, few, few good cuts. Uh, and I said, and, 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 and Shenandoah had cut this song, Next to You, Next to Me. And it was going up the charts. And I said to my wife, Christine, I said, we need to move to Nashville. And she said, ha, ha, no way. We're <laughs> not going to Nashville. And I said, come on, let's just go down and try it. Um, we can go there for like five years. I can get to know people, build relationships, and then we can move back to Boston. But, you know, I got to get, you got to live there to do it. You can't do it from outside. So she took a leap of faith with me and we, we, we got, we moved down here. And uh, I remember the first day that I drove down ahead of them, uh, closed on the house we were buying and, uh, and they flew down and I picked them up at the airport. And I had my two sons, my daughter wasn't born yet, took them to a Wendy's to clean up their faces that covered with chocolate or whatever from the airplane ride and drove them from there 
to the number one party for Next to You, Next to Me. It was the first thing they ever did in Nashville. Oh, wow. So uh, it was really exciting. And uh, after five years, I said to my wife, you know, you ready to move back to Boston? She said, hell no, I'm not scraping snow off the windshield anymore. You know, I, I like it fine right here. <laughs> so we raised this, those three kids. Um, my sons, Jake and Jamin, have far surpassed my output in terms of uh, records. They, I think they're in the studio right now recording their 11th album as Jeff the Brotherhood. Uh, and my daughter uh, has far surpassed my painting ability. She graduated from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a great art school. Um, that's one of her paintings right up there. So, ironically, so as I'm scanning the room and I'm looking at the paintings, I, I that was the first one that caught my eye because I was sitting there thinking, well, he's got his own style. It's very cool. It is very, you know, kind of primitive, primitive and cartoonish, <laughs> but it's but it's but it's unique. It's got its own way that it tells tells its story and then i see this one and i'm going he took a class <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. like that painting and of course your viewers can't see what we're looking at but that painting is obviously someone who knows what they're doing and what i love about that painting is uh, just to describe it it's a it's a fall day there's there's you know color in the trees and there's a group of one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven kids standing around a, a fire pit and there's smoke going up and a couple of them are sitting down, some of them talk, but that painting makes me wonder what, did, what are they talking about? Like what's going on? Like it's very, it's mysterious to me. I love paintings like that. The one below it is a, is a guy that's a, you know, a real, like what I call a real artist named Clint Griffin. And again, you look at that painting and you go, what are they, what's going on down here? They're in a, some sort of a, almost looks like a boxing ring, but it's outdoors and it's just a bizarre painting. I love that painting. Actually, I think that was one of my fights back in the, the late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, uh, that, that's the, that's the, 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 the amazing thing about art. I mean, art says different things to different people. My That, that painting, that, that this Clint Griffin painting that I love so much, uh, hung next to my bed uh, in the old house where when I woke up in the morning, I would open my eyes and I would stare at that painting and just one every morning and just go, what is going on here? It but looks... my wife hated that painting. So that's yeah. why it's not in our house anymore. That's why it's right next to me in my office now. To, to me, it looks like it's a it's a it's a, a pay-per-view bout about to go down between Lex Luthor and Superman. <laughs> yeah, there's people with capes. Well, yeah, there's it's... one guy who's got electricity that's coming from the telephone pole. It's sort of zapping him. Yeah. Um, some of the people are made of are painted with paint. Some of them are used just ballpoint pen. There's holes in the canvas. There's there's staples in the canvas. There's it's just a it's like it looks like a big mess. I love it. I I think it's well. I mean it's art. Yeah. You know art is the beauty in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. I mean, so exactly. It, it it is what it is. I, I caught my attention for sure, especially the one where I'm like, hmm, yeah. You you've definitely been moving up in the world of painting <laughs> no, here. No in no this no. Room. I haven't gotten. There's listen. I I stopped painting in the sixth grade. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, do you have a child that paints? And I'll be, no, those are mine. Um, because there's no reason why when I started painting again mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the age of, you know, close to, well, I guess I was around 50. Um, why would I be any better than I was in the sixth grade? I mean, I haven't learned anything more about painting. And then people said, you know, you should, they, they do classes. At, I'm like, I don't want to take a class. Right. I want to do what I do and that's it. I'm happy with that. And, you know, I've had like... 
good 25, 30 shows. Um, and I've sold a lot of paintings to a lot of people in a lot of places around the world. And uh, it's not because it's, 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 uh, it, it's great art. It's because they tell stories that everyone can kind of relate to. Because everybody has those moments in their childhood. So whether it's a painting or whether it's a song, mm -hmm. what is your process? What, what is the process with which you go about... It starts with an it starts with an idea that'll come in the strangest time. It'll come while I'm watching a TV show. It'll come when I'm I go for a walk. A lot of things happen. It can happen in the shower. For both, I, but uh, yeah, for both. And I'll write stuff down. I'll just I have an idea and I'll write it down. There's some bunch of scraps of paper behind you that are things I've written down the last few days. Some of them are art ideas and some of them are song ideas. Sometimes they're the same idea. There are there are there are uh, songs that I've painted, and there are paintings that I've turned into a song. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I have a, a, a children's book called Counting Sheep. Um, you know, I painted the, the lyrics to the song and then the song is in the back of the, in the back of the, and the song was recorded by, um, uh, uh, a country artist. Uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, um, he made it, it was for Sony records and he cut a couple of my, my children's kind of songs and, and, but this one I turned into a book. Um, so it, it, it really starts with writing something down on a scrap of paper. Sometimes I won't touch it for as much as, uh, two weeks or two years. And then I'll pick something up and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I should, How about yeah. this? Mm -hmm. How about you create a, hell, a, a collection of 10, 10 paintings with songs that belong to that painting so that there's somehow some kind of a button you can push on that painting and it plays the song <laughs> yeah. that reflects. Well, it's funny. I do have in my art shack out back, I do have a, a painting with a button that you can press on the side and it, it, it it's, it's the real life recording of the moment that's captured in the painting. Oh, and it's wow. my, it's my aunt Mabel. When I was, a, I was probably 10 years old and I got, it was Christmas time and I got a, a little reel to reel tape recorder with a little microphone. Part of being a, it was, it was kind of like mission impossible, that little reel to reel tape recorder at the beginning of the TV show mm -hmm. and a little microphone. So I had hidden the microphone and I was trying to get my aunt to say something. And, um, she wouldn't say anything. I was like, so, uh, you know, so I just took a, a bunch of cookies from the, the tray in front of me and I started stuffing them in my mouth. And my aunt Mabel said, Oh, Bobby, stop being like a pig. And so on the painting, there I am with my aunt Mabel stuffing cookies in my mouth. She's saying, Oh, Bobby, stop being like a pig. But if you press the button on the side of the painting, it plays back the recording from 1967 or whatever. Of my aunt actually saying the words. That is yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's, Has it, she seen it? And as a matter of fact, when we sold our house uh, two houses ago, when we our first house that we bought in, in uh, Nashville, when we sold that house, the, the owner, the people that were buying the house wanted to make that part of the sale of the house. They wanted, to, they wanted it included. And I was like, it better not be a deal breaker because I'm not selling that one. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my memorial to my Aunt Mabel. So... You know, and I, I still have that one. Wow. But yeah, that's the process. And um, I do it every day. Um, there's not a day when I don't try to write something or try to paint something or try to at least sketch out some ideas and, and thoughts. And that keeps that muscle in the brain working. And um, I find it gets easier and easier uh, the, the older I get. So you think you're more of a visual person or more of a, uh, you know, an audio sensory? What What is your... What is well, uh... 
if you mean A-U-R-A-L, Oral, mm. I guess I would have to say Oral because <laughs> that's my name, Robert Ellis Oral. Uh, but um, I, I, definitely it's both. I mean, I'm surrounded. If, you, if you're in my office, you are surrounded by visual stimuli all the time. It's really, my wife calls it a reflection of my ADD brain um, because there's just, there's too much visual stimulation. I like it that way. I think that I think that ADD uh, is is a is a is a help to someone who's writing songs. I, I yes, it allows your allows your your you know your your brain to sort of jump from thought to thought to thought. It's not great for an interview when you're trying to sit down and get your train of thought back to the thing you were saying five minutes ago because you've already forgotten it. But as far as uh, songwriting is concerned, it's a great asset. Oh, absolutely. I can I myself. So I yeah, I can, I can attest to that. I agree wholeheartedly with that one. <laughs> so when so do you do you forget a name or a face or anything like oh, yeah. that? Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I moved into a, a build a, a condo building in what they call the Gulch in Nashville, it's a, and it's a high rise, a glass tower. And uh, I was the first one. My wife and I were the first people to move into this glass tower. And the first night we were there alone, except for the security people and that kind of thing. The next day I met the first couple people that had moved in. And the next day I met more people. And I said, this time I'm going to start remembering names. And I'm just going to, you know, hey, Joe, right? Yeah. And I'm going to, Joe, 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 keep saying it over and over like they tell you to. And I got to know all these people and I'd be like, hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning. Hey, Bob. And now there's the buildings full of people. And now they all sort of, sort of glaze into each other. And uh, I forgot my next door neighbor's name. And every day that I see her, she'd be like, hey, Bob. And I go, hey, hey how you doing? And finally, I said, you know what? This has got to stop. I just have to start saying to people, listen, I'm old. I, I can't remember names. What's your name again? And she said, I'm Jamie. And I'm like, oh, that's right. It's almost exactly the same as my son, Jamin. It's Jamie. And I couldn't believe I didn't remember her name. So um, like this morning I met someone and I said, hey, what's your name? And she said, Eileen. And I was getting a cup of coffee down the, the place where you get coffee. And before I finished my coffee, finished filling up, I couldn't remember whether it was Eileen or Elaine. So I said, Eileen or Elaine? She said, Eileen. I said, okay, I'll try to remember that. So I, I think that's just, um, it's, I, I've always had that problem. It's not, it's not uh, being 60. It's, oh, I just I, always yeah. had that problem. I, I, I remember the faces though. Right, I always right? see the faces, right. and 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 so I'll see someone, and I'll get that look of recognition, and I'll just go up and go. I kind of overcompensate. I'll like go up and give them a hug. Hey, what's going on? And it might be, yeah, I met you once, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I avoid it by just calling everybody Champ. Yeah. Hey, Champ. Yep. What's up, Champ? Yeah. You know, and then hopefully talk long enough till I, they say something that goes. Oh, I got to tell you, one time uh, here at where I write here at uh, the Infinity Cat House. Uh, I wrote a song with these two guys that were in this rock band and, uh, you know, it was one day of writing, someone hooked me up, they were going in to make an album and, and we wrote a song and they cut the song and, and, uh, that was that, but we had made another date to write like three months later cause they were really busy and they were on the road and stuff, but I didn't put it on my calendar. So I'm sitting at, at you know, doing stuff and tinkling away on the piano and, uh, and there's a knock on the door, and I open the door, and there's these two guys standing there with guitars. They got long hair. They go, hey, Bob, how you doing? And I'm like, hey, what's going on? Come on in. I have no idea who they are. <laughs> I don't know who they are or why they're here, but they both have guitars with them. So I'm going, come on in. What's going on, guys? Good to see you. What's happening? 
how are things going? Now I'm trying. Now I'm doing. You know, I'm trying to get from them some inkling of who they are by talking to them. So what's going on? What you guys been up to? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, hey, we've been out in the road. And I, okay, all right, they're in a band. Okay, and I, you know, and I, anyway. So did you like the? We sent you the, the, you know, we sent you the song that's going on the record. And I was like, ah, oh, now it's starting to make sense. I don't know their names, but I know who they are because. I had, you know, recently been sent a song that was going on a record, and that's a happy day when that happened. So I was like, and then I just looked up who I wrote that song with while I was talking to them, and I then I knew their names. But I didn't know which was which. Oh, okay. But that that eventually, uh, that I think that the way I figured that out, I think, was just going like, um, hey, Dan, and seeing which one of them turned around and looked at me. So, uh, yeah, that's the severe case of... Um, not knowing what well, I'm doing. Well, well, the reason I brought that up is because uh, w- w- one of the m- one of my favorite stories that you've ever told me was, uh, you know, obviously Garth Brooks is is one of the you know biggest country music artists of all time. Sure. And uh, uh, he came up to you several years later and thanked you for your advice because he said that the, the, your one piece of advice was the greatest advice that he had ever gotten at the beginning of his career, and it was make sure you have a camera with you everywhere that you go. Oh, I did tell him that, yeah. He was, he was. Uh, I think it was when he was he was singing a demo for me. I, I might have told him that. And, yeah, um, I, I, I have, and, and Garth, if you're listening, I have some better advice. Cut one of my songs. <laughs> Is that that never happened? I would, I would still love to have a, a, a cut. You know, I've had some some great um, some 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 cuts that I'm really proud of. I mean, basically, starting with that Shenandoah song, which is still. I mean, it's been recorded time and time again, most recently by Rascal Flatts. It was on a Target-only version of their album. And, of course, there's that that that, that girl up there, Taylor Swift. Um, first couple records of hers, I uh, had a few songs on each and co-produced those records. And um, she's gone on to do some good things. Yeah, you yeah, know, she's, I think if she yeah, sticks yeah, with yeah, it, she might yeah, have a she, career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, amazing, amazing, amazing talent. Um, Did you know it when, when, whenever you met? You probably met her when she was like 12, 13 she was years 13, old. Just thirteen, yeah. And uh, I'll tell you exactly what. Someone asked me this question the other day. We wrote the first song we ever wrote was called "I'm Only Me When I'm With You," and we wrote it with uh, a friend of mine named Angelo, who uh, is actually the producer or co-producer, but has produced every Kings of Leon record since the very first one. But um, we wrote the song, and she was so. Uh, different and so confident and so uh just unlike any kid i'd ever met at that age and you know you work you'll work with a lot of teenagers when you're writing songs but i said you know you're gonna sell three million copies of their first record and um and angelo backed me up on this story uh but i was off by five million because she <laughs> sold eight million copies of her first record and the funniest thing about i'm only me when i'm with you is that Last year it was a Valentine's Day card, and here it is. I get and then you open it up, and there's there's the song right there. That's and, awesome. And the great thing about I mean it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean the great thing about this Valentine's Day com- this this card company is they pay twice as much as a CD for the for putting the song in there. That is awesome. Yeah, I don't think people realize that the songwriter, if you write a song by yourself and it's on a CD, you only make nine cents per CD sold. 9.1 to be exactly. That so, just really hurt my feelings. Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? And and people don't realize that. They think, you know, it's a tough, tough uh, 
you know, tough road to hoe. If you're gonna, if you if you want to be a songwriter, you know, get used to rejection and get used to wondering where the money is, unless you really hit a, a single. If you get a single, radio pays incredibly. But nine point one cents. Um, so if you write it with somebody, if you and I write a song and it's cut by an artist that sells a hundred thousand copies, well, that's four, basically four and a half cents a piece per copy sold. So a hundred thousand copies times four and a half cents is four hundred and fifty dollars don't give me adding <laughs> so it, it might be 40 it might be 4500 we have to do the math uh that's not my strong point but it's not a lot of money um so to get paid 18 cents a greeting card that's that's pretty cool wow yeah. i mean that 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 once again that's so you've you, you produced golly taylor swift uh, michael peterson yeah uh there's tons of hit songwriters that you've written with you've all, i believe you've written with jessica simpson too didn't you yeah we wrote a few songs um <laughs> we they flew me out to la to, to write with her um and another guy that i used to write with in la a lot and um she was going out with nick uh nick lachey i think mm -hmm, his name was yeah. she was so in love with him <laughs> And we wrote love songs to Nick. Oh my! Like I, I'm in. You know, you are heaven, and these love songs, right? And then by the time she went to make her record, she'd broken up with him. Oh, we, yeah. Where do you think those songs went? Right in the trash. <laughs> she became Taylor Swift and started writing hate songs to Listen, Nick. Listen, I tell you what, she. That's what can happen. Like when you're writing with an artist, and that artist goes through a change. And they break up or whatever. The, those songs you wrote, say goodbye. As now it's all about. Yeah, that was last year. You know what I'm saying? I don't. We don't speak anymore. So, um, but there's this new guy that I met. Well, yeah, so that, there's a lot of things that can go wrong between writing the song and trying to get it on a record. I always like to say writing songs is easy. Getting cuts is really hard. Oh, I imagine because uh, probably every artist wants to be on the t the the cut now. Didn't used to be that way when I first moved here. I mean, if you look at like Randy Travis's "Storms of Life" record, which is one of the great ones, I think. Mm -hmm. um, no, he didn't write any of those songs, and and pretty much every song has different writers, you know, from song to song. Sure. Um, but there were some artist writers like Steve Earle and Dwight Yoakam that were writing their own stuff. But, uh, you know, so somehow it sort of evolved into uh, every writer, every every artist wanting to at least be part of the songwriting process mm -hmm. to feel ownership and to feel like it's it's my song. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I totally get that because I've always wrote my own songs. Um, when I worked with Love and Theft and produced their first record, they wrote their whole first record. They should because they're great songwriters. They wrote their whole new record. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there are some people that, that are great writers that become artists and there's some artists that learn how to write as the process goes on. And uh, that's what though that that is what makes it tougher to get a cut now than ever because you kind of have to be writing with the artist. All right, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. The last the last subject that I want to talk to you about is uh, one of the things that I am starting to gravitate towards, and I, I haven't yet. I want to desperately um, because I miss it so much, uh, and, and it's the it's how e Infinity Cat has evolved into vinyl 
and mm-hmm. I want to I want to go buy a record player so bad, and I want to start collecting my you know records again and start listening right. to records and and listening to music that way. Something you can touch and feel, and the you know brings back all of those memories. Sure. And uh, you know, so it, tell me how did how did how did Infinity Cat evolve into that, and how? I, I, I'll tell you, we were a little bit ahead of the curve. This is before the vinyl revolution. Um, uh, it was about six or seven years ago. Um, my sons, who own the record label with me, Jake and Jamin, they we had a, a rare business meeting for the record label, and they came in and they said, "Dad, the CD is dead," and I was like, "What?" They said, "CDs are over," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" They like they're not special. Anyone can make a CD. You know, you can download something, and then of course, as we all know, that's evolved into a really a truism that people buy CDs and then they burn them onto their computer, and then they never put take out the CD again. Sometimes they put them in the car, but now everyone's sort of plugging in their iPhone or their or Bluetoothing music and all that kind of stuff, or streaming. So they were right about that, and that's when we put out our first 7-inch uh, and uh, with a local uh, record pressing company right in Nashville that's now right across the street from Infinity Cat called United Record Pressing. And... Um, and then we followed that with the first album, and and over the years, that's that's evolved into a a, play, a point where the most recent Jeff the Brotherhood record doesn't even have a CD component to it, um, because along the way, at the same time, and this is kind of one of the reasons why vinyl uh, grew in popularity really quickly, I think, is because um, the vinyl pressing plants started hosting digital download versions of the album so if you buy an album from infinity cat you don't have to have a turntable but you still get the cover art and the bit you know the big gatefold sleeve and the all the stuff that's inside because we like to stuff our records with you know little posters and stickers and all that stuff but you can then download the whole album anyway and put it on your phone and on your computer and but 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 the great joy i think comes from putting on a record and with the intent to listen to a side of a record. And then that, that ends and you hear it go and you go and you, you have to physically go lift that record up and flip it over and listen to the other side. And we still make records. Our, our artists on the label um, still make records with an, with an ear towards what's the, what's, what's going to be the a side and what's going to be the B side and how is that going to flow? And, and that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we got three turntables in this house Um and we are, they're in constant use. And um, I still have my records from high school. Um, they're all out in my art shack, um, whereas, where, I, where I paint, so I can plop a record on there and, and paint. But there's nothing like great, greater than, than going out and just pulling out that old Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record or, or you know, the, just something from like way in your past. And hearing those clicks and pops, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like... Um, it's like uh, you know you, you 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 can't eat bacon unless you hear the sizzle. That's 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 the the the, the what you're getting. You're sure. getting a little click and pop, but you you're also getting this beautiful warm sound that um, that we kind of lost when we went to MP3s and and CDs. So what do people do when they when they buy their record and say they want to listen to it on you know driving in their car as mm-hmm. well? How do they get the music? So it comes with so it comes with a a little piece of paper inside, and it has. You go to a website and you enter the code in, and you download, and it 
comes right down on your computer. Now, if you want to burn your own CD, you burn it. Otherwise, you just move it around your devices like you do any other kind of music. So every piece of vinyl that we sell has a digital component to it. Do you do you set it up so that they can only download that once? Yes. That, that co- good. It's a one-time yeah. download, yeah. That is smart. That is so smart. Well, I, I, my vow, one of my goals by the end of February, definitely by the end of March, I want my own record player. I want to get back in that world. I want to listen. I, I just want to buy an old Don Williams record or an old Merle yeah, Haggard record. You betcha. Yeah. Vern Gosden and just put it on and just listen to it and go, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I remember, you know, or even a, or an old Richard Pryor record. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, I used to love listening to comedy records. Too. Yeah, me too. Um, but I appreciate your time, Robert Ellis Oral, and and uh, man, we've been friends for a long, long time. Um, ever since uh, uh, selling you a a, a vehicle, um, uh, that's how we met. Exactly on a, on, a, on a car lot. We met on a car lot. Yep. yep. Uh, and uh, I was introduced to the 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 wonder that is the honky tonk hitman, Mike Rogers. I mean, because you really are an amazing positive uh, force in people's lives and just an incredibly talented uh, singer, songwriter, and all the other things that you do uh, that make you you. I, I, and I appreciate that. You, you can keep going. Just... <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all you gave me to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. All right, we're out of here. Uh, I, I Thank you, everybody. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye.